0: Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Season 2, Episode 1. So Ryan, we we'll are head back to Ancient Greece, I Where are we going, and whose life are we covering today? Well, for this episode, it's going
0: to be another uh, two-for-one special, as we'll be covering two lives at once, and we'll be picking up basically right where we left off in Athens. To jog everyone's memories, when we last left Athens, the city had just been dealt a devastating blow in its war with Sparta. Athens' lead citizen Pericles had convinced the Athenians to avoid a decisive land battle with the Spartans, which would play to the Spartans' strengths, and instead stay behind their city walls and use their large navy to their advantage. However, a plague spread within the heavily populated city and claimed the life of Pericles. The war was not over, but the city would need to find new leaders. In this episode, we will take on the lives of two Athenians who would step into the void left behind by Pericles. These would be Alcibiades and Nicias. Alcibiades was an Athenian of noble birth. His father Clinius had gained recognition for fitting out a galley and fighting well against the Persian fleet in the sea battle at Artemisium. Clinius later died in the Battle of Coronea. With the death of his father in this battle, Alcibiades became the ward of Pericles, the most prominent citizen of Athens and a close relative. It's difficult to say how much having Pericles as his guardian contributed to the development of Alcibiades' massive ego, but one can imagine that it was a contributing factor. Another contributor to Alcibiades' immense self-confidence was his physical beauty, Plutarch mentions that Alcibiades was one of those fortunate individuals who was beautiful through all the stages of life. As an infant, a child, a youth, and throughout his manhood, Alcibiades had an appearance of grace and beauty that charmed men and women alike. He also apparently spoke with a lisp, and it's not entirely clear if this was a natural feature of his speech or an affectation, but it seems people found it pleasant and that it enhanced his persuasiveness.
1: Really? So his lisp actually made him a more effective public speaker? That's very interesting how different characteristics like that can be considered either an asset or a detriment, depending on the time and place of one's birth. I mean, one has to look no further than Claudius.
0: Very true. As much as people are becoming more understanding of speech differences, it is hard to imagine anyone today purposely speaking with a lisp in order to be more persuasive. This was far from the only unique feature about Alcibiades, however. It seems that from a young age, he was different, and Plutarch relates several anecdotes which show that even as a boy, he had a rare and ambitious personality. He was incredibly headstrong, independent, and driven to excel, personality traits well-suited to the Athens he grew up in. Plutarch relates that, quote, Once, while being hard-pressed in wrestling, and fearing to be thrown, he got the hand of his antagonist to his mouth, and bit it with all his force. And when the other loosed his hold presently, and said, You bite, Alcibiades, like a woman. No, replied he, like a lion. <laughs> Very-
1: That's a very nice reply.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you can imagine how this young man from a famous family, who is attractive, athletic, bold, and intelligent, is going to attract a lot of attention in Athens, even at a young age. As is still the unfortunate case with young stars today, Alcibiades developed an entourage around him, and many of these hangers on did not have Alcibiades' best interest at heart. And they were only interested in Alcibiades' good looks or his status. However, there was at least one person who took an interest in young Alcibiades who was dedicated to helping the youth develop his potential for greatness, and this was Socrates. At the Battle of Potidaea, Socrates saved Alcibiades' life by shielding him when he had fallen in battle. However, it appears Socrates was as much concerned with preserving Alcibiades' character as he was his body. Plutarch writes that Socrates, quote, Fearing that his wealth and station, and the great number both of strangers and Athenians who flattered and caressed him, might at last corrupt him, resolved, if possible, to interpose and preserve so hopeful a plant from perishing in the flower before its fruit came to perfection. For never did fortune surround and enclose a man with so many of those things which we vulgarly call goods, or so protect him from every weapon of philosophy and fence him from every access of free and searching words, as she did Alcibiades, who, from the beginning, was exposed to the flatteries of those who sought merely his gratification, such as might well unnerve him and indispose him to listen to any real adviser or instructor." Yet such was the happiness of his genius that he discerned Socrates from the rest and admitted him whilst he drove away the wealthy and the noble who made court to him. And, in a little time, they grew intimate. As a side note, the focus of one of Plato's dialogues would actually be Socrates conversing with and instructing a young Alcibiades. In the dialogue, a youthful Alcibiades expresses to Socrates his interest in entering the political arena. However, through his typical question and answer method, Socrates eventually has Alcibiades second guessing himself and all of his assumptions about politics, justice, and leadership. Alcibiades realizes that he is not ready to enter into politics and needs the mentorship of Socrates to become more virtuous and wise first. In one notable part of the dialogue, Alcibiades argues that his ignorance should be no barrier to entering politics because the other Athenian politicians are ignorant as well. But Socrates points out that he should consider the kings of Sparta and the great king of Persia as his true rivals, and not the other Athenian politicians.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point.
0: Anyway, I digress a bit here. While Socrates certainly seems to have had an influence on Alcibiades, not even Socrates was fully successful in reigning in Alcibiades' wild side. Both men and women found him attractive. He was known to have many lovers, and to enjoy drinking and partying to excess. And as a young man, he often engaged in pranks and mischief as well. The other subject of our episode is Nicias and really, you couldn't come up with a personality more different than Alcibiades. Nicias was from the older generation, and he actually served as general alongside Alcibiades' guardian Pericles before his death. Not only was Nicias older than Alcibiades, but he had a completely different temperament. Whereas Alcibiades was bold and brash, Nicias was conservative and cautious, to the point of being accused of being timid at times. After the death of Pericles from the plague. Nicias rose to a place of prominence in Athenian politics, with the support of mostly wealthier Athenians who sought someone to counter the influence of Cleon. Cleon has traditionally been presented as a greedy and arrogant demagogue who liked to rile up the mob with yelling and crude language and gestures in the assembly, such as lifting the hem of his garment and slapping his bare thighs. Certainly there is more than one source that attests to this side of Cleon's personality. However, I think in fairness to Cleon, it is important to note that our written sources of Athenian history are men from the upper class of Athenian society, who tend to have a fairly dim view of the poorer Athenians, and democracy in general, so we should always take their criticisms with a grain of salt. In any event, it is safe to say that following the death of Pericles, Cleon was a more strident, aggressive voice in the Ecclesia, while Nicias was a voice urging caution. Nicias did not have the skill of Pericles in presenting arguments, or the wit of Cleon, but he did need the support of more than just the wealthy, And so, according to Plutarch, Nicias courted the people with dramatic exhibitions, gymnastic games, and other public shows more sumptuous and more splendid than had ever been known in his or in former ages. Nicias also made a great show of his piety and made lavish religious offerings. These offerings were probably intended to enhance his popularity with the public, at least in part. However, Plutarch indicates that Nicias does appear to also have been a man of deep religious belief privately as well. In addition to his piety and his public generosity, Nicias was also extremely careful not to give the public any reason to turn against him, rarely appearing outside of his home except when executing public duties, so as to never involve himself in any kind of controversy or scandal at all. You may recall that Pericles also employed a similar strategy of staying out of the public eye except when performing official duties.
1: Well, sounds like modern politicians could probably take a lesson from Nicias and Pericles. And stay the heck off Twitter.
0: (laughs) Very true. Anyway, uh, with these different strategies, Niccius was able to overcome his deficits in personality and persuasive speech and become a very successful public figure. Now, to take a step back again to look at the big picture, when we left off in episode 12 of season 1, the plague had devastated Athens, taking the life of Pericles and a significant portion of the population. But even so, the Athenians had been able to avoid a knockout blow from the Spartans by remaining behind their long walls. They had been through an arduous ordeal, but they were not out of the fight, and they continued to stick with the strategy that the deceased Pericles had outlined, to avoid a classic hoplite land battle with the Spartans while using their naval supremacy to weaken Sparta and her allies. Every summer the Spartan army would invade Attica and ravage the countryside, destroying what property the Athenians were unable to bring behind their walls. The Spartans kept the Athenians bottled up, but could not effectively lay siege without a navy to rival that of Athens kind of stalemate resulted, with neither side able to land a knockout blow in the ongoing war. At the Battle of Amphipolis, though, the aggressively pro-war Athenian Cleon was slain in battle, and in the same battle the Spartan Brasidas, who was a firebrand on the Spartan side, was also killed. With the death of these two war hawks, the way was clear for Nicias to negotiate a peace with the Spartan king Pleistoanax. The historian Thucydides writes that, quote, Nicias, while still happy and honoured, wished to secure his good fortune, to obtain a present release from trouble for himself and his countrymen, and hand down to posterity a name as an ever-successful statesman, and thought the way to do this was to keep out of danger and commit himself as little as possible to fortune, and that peace alone made this keeping out of danger possible." In other words, Nicias was not a gambling man. So far the war had been an up-and-down affair for Athens, and for himself personally as a general. To him, the safest bet was to cut their losses and make peace with Sparta, and there were enough war-weary people on both sides to make the peace treaty happen. In all, the Peace of Nicias, signed in 421 BC, would last almost seven years. Thucydides argues, with the benefit of hindsight, he admits, that the peace was doomed to failure from the start, as neither the Athenians nor the Spartans were fully committed to it, and did not fully abide by its terms. However, it did give both sides a chance to take a breath and reassess their situation. With his political rival Cleon dead, and a peace treaty with Sparta concluded, Nicias must have been feeling pretty pleased with himself and his legacy as a statesman. However, he soon found that he already had a dangerous new political rival to contend with in Athens. As Plutarch puts it, Nicias found that quote, having brought matters to a pretty hopeful condition, he found everything carried away and pledged again into confusion by Alcibiades through the wildness and vehemence of his ambition. It is little surprise, really, that once Alcibiades decided to set his mind to politics, he would be an instant success. Plutarch lists the many things he had working in his favour, noble birth, a multitude of friends and hangers-on, considerable wealth, and a reputation for bravery gained in various battles. But Plutarch points out that Alcibiades was not content to let his success rest on those things alone, but also sought to be a highly effective speaker and win over the assembly with his eloquence. Contemporaries noted that not only was Alcibiades great at knowing the right thing to say at any moment, but also just the right way to say it. He was also known for keeping a great number of horses and chariots for competition, sending seven chariots to the Olympic Games, something no one else, not even a king, had done. Seven chariots? Yeah, and I suppose, not surprisingly, given the number of chariots he entered, he took home first, second, and fourth place prizes, or perhaps third place, Plutarch says his sources differ. Anyway, this also had never happened before. So, given all of this, when Alcibiades decided to get involved in public affairs, right away he was really more popular than any other politician, with the exception of Nicias. Plutarch mentions another rising young statesman named Phaeax, who contested with Alcibiades, but he didn't have the skill for public oration that Alcibiades did, being more suited to persuading others in private conversation. The only other potential rival, was a man named Hyperbolus, who the ancient sources depict as a demagogue, something like Cleon before, who liked to rile up the mob, endorsed an aggressive foreign policy, and was a target of ridicule for the comic poets of Athens. When an ostracism vote was proposed, both Alcibiades and Nicias feared that they would receive the most votes and be exiled. So Plutarch says that they put their differences aside and worked together to convince Athenians to ostracize Hyperbolus, and they were successful in this endeavor. However, Plutarch seems to think that ostracism was actually doing too much honor to someone as shameless as Hyperbolus, who actually seemed to take being exiled as a badge of honor, since it put him in the company of previous famous recipients of ostracism, such as Thucydides and Aristides. Plutarch says that, quote, For Hyperbolus, it was a glory and a fair ground for boasting on his part, when for his villainy he suffered the same with the best men. End quote.
1: Well, I guess there is no such thing as bad publicity.
0: Yes. Not all Athenian politicians were like Nicias and Pericles and tried to avoid scandal. Others seemed to revel in it, just like today. Anyway, hyperbolus or no hyperbolus, it was Alcibiades and Nicias who the Athenians looked to for leadership more than anyone else during this period. However, these two had very different ideas about what was best for Athens, which is to be expected given the stark differences in their personalities. As we have seen, Nicias was cautious by nature and committed to maintaining the peace that he had negotiated with Sparta whereas Alcibiades was charismatic and bold. I may not have done a good enough job of describing so far just how eccentric of a character Alcibiades was in ancient Athens. He once kept a painter as a prisoner until he had finished painting his entire house, and then let him go with a reward for good work. Another time, he struck another Athenian in public for putting on public shows in opposition to his own. It is said that Alcibiades had a big handsome dog, which was well known in Athens, and he decided to have the dog's magnificent tail lopped off. When someone remarked to him that all of Athens was sorry for the dog, Alcibiades replied with a laugh that, I wanted the Athenians to talk about this, that they might not say something worse of me. Eccentric, I know. Plutarch sums up the character of Alcibiades by saying that he displayed, quote, Exorbitant luxury and wantonness in his eating and drinking and dissolute living, wore long purple robes like a woman, which dragged after him as he went through the marketplace, caused the planks of his galley to be cut away, that so he might lie the softer, his bed not being placed on the boards, but hanging upon girths. His shield, again, which was richly gilded, had not the usual ensigns of the Athenians, but a cupid holding a thunderbolt in his hand was painted upon it. The sight of all this made the people of good repute in the city feel disgust and abhorrence, and apprehension also at his free living and his contempt of law, as things monstrous in themselves, and indicating to signs of usurpation. Aristophanes has well expressed the people's feeling towards him. They love and hate and cannot do without him. The truth is, his liberalities, his public shows, and other munificence to the people, which were such as nothing could exceed, the glory of his ancestors, the force of his eloquence, the grace of his person, his strength of body, joined with his great courage and knowledge in military affairs, prevailed upon the Athenians to endure patiently his excesses. To indulge many things to him, and, according to their habit, to give the softest names to his faults, attributing them to youth and good nature.
1: Okay, so I'm starting to get the picture here. Some of his behavior is over the top, but most Athenians are accepting of it because he also displays many impressive qualities?
0: Yeah, yeah, that seems to have been the case for the most part. Anyway, given Alcibiades' personality, you can probably guess that he was not a supporter of the peace of Nicias. Plutarch suggests that Alcibiades' opposition to the peace with Sparta was motivated strictly by envy of all the credit that Nicias was receiving from it. But there may have been more to it than just that. There is evidence that many in Sparta and among her allies had lukewarm feelings about the peace treaty. Perhaps Alcibiades sensed that the peace could not succeed in the long term. In any event, whether it was due to envy or foresight, Alcibiades began working to isolate and destroy the Spartans. He arranged an alliance with Argos, Sparta's old rival on the Peloponnese peninsula, and with the addition of Ellis and Mantinea to the alliance, Sparta had three cities on the Peloponnese opposed to them. This resulted in a showdown at the Battle of Mantinea in 418 BC, an old-fashioned hoplite slugfest which saw King Aegis of Sparta commanding an army of Spartans and Arcadian allies, some 9,000 strong, against a combined force of Argives, Elians, Mantineans, and Athenians, perhaps 8,000 strong. Now, Thucydides notes that in a hoplite battle, armies have a tendency to slide to one side, as each man in line instinctively seeks the shelter of the shield of the man next to him, and this leaves both armies in danger of being overlapped on their left wing. At the Battle of Mantinea, as the Spartans advanced in time to the sound of the flute, King Aegis of Sparta noticed the danger of his left flank being enveloped, and so he ordered the men on the left wing to move further to the left, and ordered men from the right to fill the resulting gap in his lines. However, his commanders on the right wing balked at this order, and so the disorganized left wing, unable to recover in time, was put to the rout and driven back to the wagon train. Elsewhere on the battlefield, though, the experienced Spartans soundly defeated the allied forces, and King Aegis then pivoted and brought his victorious forces on the right wing to the aid of his beleaguered left wing, and after some further disciplined fighting, the Spartan victory was complete. Alcibiades' bid to take the fight to the Spartans on the Peloponnese had ultimately failed but the effort had still been impressive and had temporarily put the Spartans on the back foot. As Plutarch puts it, "...it was a great political feat thus to divide and shake almost all Peloponnesus, and to combine so many men in arms against the Lacedaemonians in one day before Mantinea, and moreover, to remove the war and the danger so far from the frontier of the Athenians that even success would profit the enemy but little, should they be conquerors, whereas if they were defeated, Sparta itself was hardly safe."
1: So I'm assuming this battle spelled the end of the peace of Nicias?
0: Actually, despite the open hostilities, the peace would technically hold out for about another four years, though I think you could probably make the argument that this incident displayed that the conflict between Athens and Sparta would not ultimately be resolved with a peace treaty, but would not end until one polis achieved dominance over the other. To that end, Alcibiades would continue to work undaunted and he would soon propose a bold new strategy that could decisively shift the balance in the Peloponnesian War. To find out what this strategy would be, please join us next time for the conclusion of the lives of Alcibiades and Nicias. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, Feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using. See you next time.